Radio 1 91 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. All right, that's right. It's that time in the morning. It is half past eight, and it's time for a little bit of politics. John, um, joined by John Moore and Jeffrey Miller again. Maureen, to you both. Kiara Koto. Good morning. How are we today, gentlemen? Good. Very well. Yes. Marvellous. Nice Marvelous. to see a bit of sun out there. Yeah, it's not too shabby, is it? No. Not too shabby. It's a lovely weekend. Tomorrow's going to be 26 degrees, so get ready for it. Uh, anyway, uh, New Zealand First have uh, made the headlines over the past week with a complex structure of donations to the party coming to light. Um, what's it all about, Geoffrey? Well, it's all a very complex story, and there's a lot of unknowns, uncertainties in all of this. And I, I think we should say at the outset that a lot of these are allegations. Uh, and I'm not alleging any uh, wrongdoing on the part of New Zealand First. I say that for particular reasons. Um, but essentially the uh, what we do know is that a staff reporter who is a regional reporter, I believe called uh, Matt Shand, who uh, is a reporter for stuff in the Waikato, he um, was leaked a whole lot of documents, a uh, real treasure trove of documents, related to the New Zealand First Foundation. Now, note this is not the New Zealand First Party, it's the New Zealand First Foundation, and that's really what all the story is about, mm-hmm. that there is a separate a foundation to the party um, which uh, appears to have been receiving a large amount of uh, donations to it. And from the reporting that we've seen, it all appears that the New Zealand First Foundation has been spending money on behalf of New Zealand First mm-hmm. uh, for New Zealand First-related activities. Um, and uh, they've also been uh, loaning money to the New Zealand First Party that's immediately been um, paid back to the foundation according to the reports at least um, that appears to have been what's happened but uh, the foundation has been uh, paying for speakers at the party conference it reimbursed uh, an MP Clayton Mitchell for travel um, paid for New Zealand First website hosting um, and, and did all kind of direct spending on its own, in its own right now that spending doesn't seem to have been declared um, but in addition, yeah, there's about, uh, you know, there's, there's been these loans to the New Zealand First Party um, as well. Now, it's all very complex, and a lot of the reasons why it's complex is that our election finance laws are quite complex, and, and that's intentional on the part of the political parties who mm-hmm. want all kinds of loopholes. Um, and, uh, you know, this benefits all the parties, um, for example. So... Um, you know the the law says that you know donations of more than fifteen thousand dollars must be publicly disclosed. New Zealand First hasn't disclosed any uh, such donations since two thousand and eight, um, for example. Um, you know, there's a possibility that this amount of money donated to the foundation and, and spent is could be potentially legal. Uh, if you think all the donations are below $15,000 and from different donors. So, I mean, this is the thing. It's very hard to prove things um, just by looking at the amount. You you can say, oh, it's half a million dollars and that must be illegal. Not necessarily there are potential constellations in which this could be legal. Anyway, you you need this all to be investigated is the short answer. And the Mm -hmm. Electoral Commission is now looking into these reports um, 
and they have to make it then a determination whether it needs to be investigated further. Uh, they've got no real investigatory capacity, uh, the Electoral Commission, so if they do find any uh, irregularities or prima facie irregularities, their only uh, recourse is really to pass all this stuff on to the police. Now, the police are notorious for not liking investigating mm. uh, political stuff, uh, and I guess there are good reasons for that. Um, they like to stay away from politics. Um, last time we had a New Zealand First Nations controversy or scandal uh, was way back in 2008, uh, if you recall, and Owen Glenn, uh, mm. he made a $100,000 donation to uh, Winston Peters' lawyer, um, Brian Henry, for legal fees. Uh, and Peters claimed he didn't know about it. And, you know, it was a big scandal back in 2008, uh, which I think indirectly led to New Zealand First being kicked out of Parliament and indirectly led to Labour also being uh, kicked out of, of government. So, um, you know, at that time, the allegations were passed on to the police and were then passed on to the Serious Fraud Office um, based on the, the amounts. And we could see a similar thing happen this time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Serious Fraud Office would be in a better position to investigate this stuff. But it is going to depend on, on all kinds of factors. And this is going to go on for quite a long time, I think, into election year. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's not too far away, uh, election time, I guess. Uh, just uh, probably more, just under a year. Um, who's involved, John? Winston Peters, of course. Uh, he's, um, I mean, New Zealand First is a very unusual party in that it's, uh, it, it's, well, it's accused, it's accused of being a cult around Winston Peters, and certainly uh, whether it's a, a political cult or not, it's, uh, Winston Peters has always dominated um, what, what New Zealand First stands for, who's going to be its MPs, uh, who's in charge and who isn't in charge, etc. And, and, now it's looking as though um, there's rather complicated uh, financial arrangements that have been put in place by um, possibly Winston Peters, uh, certainly by his uh, lawyer, Brian Henry, uh, possibly to channel money that's not going to be seen by the wider public. But mm-hmm. what would be disturbing to the general party membership and even maybe its MPs, uh, maybe uh, this this uh, foundation was set up to actually hide funding from the general membership and the MPs themselves. And, and that will be of uh, deep concern. Um, New Zealand First hovers on four by four to five percent support. Um, if, if Jeffrey says this continues to be an issue up to the election, uh, and and it, it cuts in just by a small, you know, 05 percent of support, uh, then that could mean that um, Wits Peters and all his fellow New Zealand First MPs are out. Mm. Uh, they have to get five percent, of course, or electoral seat. Uh, they're not going to get an electoral seat, so they've got to get five percent or above, and they could be in the real shit. One thing I think that we could see play out, there's rumours or gossip in the Beltway that there's been a bit of a rebellion by the New Zealand First MPs against Winston Peters, that they're, they're no longer deferring to him as, as New Zealand First MPs would have in the past. Um, part of this might have to do with the fact that he's been uh, unwell uh, and on leave for long periods, um, and also he's getting older, um, and uh, there, there's a whole lot of uh, MPs who are looking at uh, who's going to be the next leader leader in New Zealand first. So this issue around finances, if the, if the other New Zealand 
first MPs uh, feel that they've been deceived, uh, whether they have or not, but they feel that they've been deceived by um, Winston Peters and Brian Henry and other administrative figures in New Zealand First, then it could lead to a big internal scrap, and if that gets out in the public, um, then I, I think it's going to be dire for New Zealand First. Mm, mm, could be all over Red Rover. Um, let's move on to our second topic of the morning. Um, the race to become the Democratic Public uh, Party candidate is heating up, uh, and it's looking like a Democratic Socialist it could come out on top uh, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders leading the pack. Um, why are the youth feeling the burn, John? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, when I was uh, um, in my 20-something, back in the 90s, uh, um, socialism was a dirty word. The uh, majority of young people uh, were pretty apathetic, the whole slackers generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt I was a part of a, a tiny small minority being involved in activist politics and in parliamentary politics in the form of the New Labour Party, um, Jim Anderson's New Labour Party, whereas now you've, you've suddenly got this re-emergence of um, a form of leftism socialism, uh, even um, communism seems to be cool again and makes mm. a, a layer of youth. Um, and um, I think that's why we're seeing um, Bernie Sanders elevated to this position of the hero of a lot of youth. Uh, this this old white man, um, and he describes himself as an old white man, uh, despite being of Jewish uh, descent and also identifying as Jewish, um, and yeah, he, he's seen as, I guess he's the left-wing version of Trump, in a sense. He's this anti-establishment figure. Uh, yes, he's operating within the confines of the Democrat Party, but he's not a traditional Democrat. Um, I think he only recently joined um, in the last uh, six years or so, mm. the Democrats. And he's seen as someone who's, who's uh, projecting a sort of a, a left-wing version of draining the swamp so to say, uh, and is seen as uh, taking a, a form of sort of ideological war, if not class war, into the heart of the Democrat Party against the Democrat establishment, just as Trump did and uh, was seen to do so in the Republican Party. So, um, yeah, I think that's a... It all goes back to the financial crisis and, and that whole sort of um, collapse in the ideology of there is no alternative, that neoliberal capitalism is the only way, that, uh, that, that the market is the only force that can generate wealth. And uh, that, that, that certainty of, of what capitalism can deliver has collapsed. And mm. I think that's why we're seeing... Um, growth of both the far right and populist right but also uh, the far left and even the extreme left uh, What about Elizabeth Warren? Who's Elizabeth Warren? Well um, she's been in the Democrats for quite a while. She's seen as um, uh, many people would equate her politics with Bernie Sanders uh, she doesn't call herself a socialist or a democratic socialist. She's, she's made comments that she's a capitalist to the bone uh, whatever that means. Now when in the, in the American context, when someone calls himself a capitalist in New Zealand, it means they're a business owner, the uh, profit generator. In, in the American context, when politicians call themselves capitalists, it, it means that they embrace the capitalist system. Mm. Uh, so even Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Socialist, said uh, she also felt that she was a capitalist. You could be a capitalist and a socialist. She meant a, an attachment to uh, the idea that, that um, a free market economy is necessary. Elizabeth Warren, um, I guess you could say that she's a, 
a left-wing liberal as opposed to a social democrat or a democratic socialist. Um, she is endorsing many of Bernie Sanders' positions such as um, a universal healthcare system, but she's projecting a number of stages to bring that about. And she's actually got, she, she's standing on um, two platforms really in, in regards to healthcare, and I think this really summarises what she's all about. Yes, she's saying, okay, we want a, a single payer system, a universal healthcare system, uh, but if we can't get that, then here's another alternative, uh, which is essentially extension of Obamacare. Um, so her critics on the left say, well, she's not the real deal, uh, that she'll be far more uh, ready to compromise than Bernie Sanders, and that whereas Bernie Sanders projects himself as an anti-establishment and even an anti-capitalist figure to a degree, and of course you can pull that all apart and say, is he really an anti-capitalist? Uh, Elizabeth Warren doesn't. She, yeah. she uh, um, yes, yeah, she'll attack the, the, the billionaires uh, like um, um, but even Trump at times would attack the billionaires but yeah she's she's a more moderate version of Bernie Sanders and that might make her more, if it comes down to a race between her and Bernie Sanders then you might see the Democratic establishment uh, um, back her yeah. as, as the, the lesser of two evils <laughs> for them <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As they did with uh, Hillary, um, I guess, Indeed. In, in the last election. Um, what about millennial socialism? You know, have we, have we moved far enough away from the Cold War for socialism not to be the dirty word anymore? I think so, and I think that's why, I mean, you're talking, when you look at millennials and Generation Z, uh, certainly um, with Generation Z, they weren't born when, uh, when, when those ostensible communist states existed, those autocratic um, uh, Stalinist regimes. Sure, we've still got China, Vietnam, Laos, uh, uh, Cuba, etc., but none of those states, maybe with the exception of Cuba, don't really project themselves in a hardline socialist way, uh, despite having um, uh, still to some degree centralised economies. But yeah, I think after the collapse of those Stalinist regimes in Eastern Europe and with the Soviet Union, yeah, there was a period of capitalist triumphalism. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and the very term capitalism kind of disappeared because uh, as it was now seen as the only viable system, people just stopped using the term capitalism. Uh, and and um, socialism, sure, you still had parties in Europe, etc., that called themselves socialists, but uh, you know, we generally had embraced um, uh, free market reforms and austerity, etc. Again, it, I think it goes back to the financial crisis, but also events like the, the debacle of the um, uh, Afghanistan war, Iraq war. It's just chipped away um, uh, slowly uh, but steadily at people's uh, faith in the system, the political system and the economic system. And I think um, youth are very aware that um, they're in a position, especially Generation Z, they're in a position where they're going to be poorer than their parents and grandparents. Mm. Uh, and and, um, and so I think that's why there's been, you know, people are looking around for ideas, uh, alternatives, and um, especially in America when the right presents anything that's uh, slightly to the left, even Obama, is socialist, suddenly people are saying, well, Obama's slightly better than the Republicans, maybe socialism's okay then. So it was, ironically, it was the right that sort of uh, projected this new um, sort of interest in socialism and communism by uh, disparaging the opponents as communists and socialists all the time. Jeffrey, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can, can either of these two win against Trump? Um, will they need a, a youth quake? Uh, and can they get the youth to actually get out and vote? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I took a look at the, the polling uh, at the moment and the averages. Um, still, nationally in the U.S., Biden is is the front runner. He's mm. got about 30%. Um, Sanders and Warren each got about 20% each. So actually, together, they are stronger. Um, but I don't see that... Uh, either Warren or Sanders will give up for the other and uh, this could potentially be a problem down the line um, when it comes to the Democratic uh, primaries that effectively the vote is split between these two candidates who you know do have a lot of similarities in their positions okay Mm. you can look at and say okay Sanders is the more revolutionary one and Warren is pragmatic but I think they're differences of degrees and overall they've got far more in in common than that than they then there are differences um, between them. Um, but, yeah, the first states, of course, are Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, interestingly enough, in Iowa, it's uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's the mayor from uh, South Bend in Indiana, who's actually leading there. Um, and Warren and Sanders uh, come you know, a little way behind him. Um, in New Hampshire, it's Warren, so who's who's the front runner? Um, and of course, you know, the claim is always made: well, these states are not very representative of the rest of the country. And I think that's very, very true. And you look at some of these other states, um, more southern states, Nevada or North South Carolina. They are also, um, you know, in the the first uh, states, I think, to to hold their votes. Um, you know, they've got much bigger lead for Biden and and Joe Biden will be counting on that uh, mm. to say, you know, he's more electable and Sanders and, and Warren are not electable. Of course, that was Hillary Clinton's uh, kind of uh, uh, claim too when, uh, when it came to the Democratic primaries that she was electable and Sanders was a crazy old man who, who couldn't be elected. You know, that was a subtext. Um, and we sort of know how that worked out, don't we, in the in the end? Mm. <laughs> it didn't work out very well in the general election. I mean, of course, I mean, it's hard to prove the counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened if Sanders had come up against Trump. We can never really know. Um, but, you know, certainly I think there is more scepticism towards the Biden candidacy uh, based on the experience with Hillary Clinton last time around. And, and Biden does seem to be the 2020 version of, of 2016 Hillary Clinton in many ways. She's the establishment candidate who claims he's uh, electable um, and, and to choose him because you know, he'd be better than Trump. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could see a deal if one of them, you know, if those two running together, if one of them gets in. I believe that Elizabeth Warren, if she became the presidential candidate for the Democrats, she would be more than likely to uh, take on a, someone to the right of her. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, and either if it's, it's if it's Sanders or Warren, there'd be huge pressure from the um, Democratic establishment mm. uh, to, to uh, uh, have someone running alongside them who is, is clear to their right economically. Yeah. Something tells me Nancy won't be too happy if either of them get in. <laughs> no, Nancy Pelosi, not at all, no. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, she's uh, initially when there was this new wave of leftism in the Democrats, she dismissed it. And, and when uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, uh, was voted in, she dismissed it. It's just mm. an aberration. Mm. Um, I think she's now realised that's not the case, and she has to work with this uh, new left layer in the Democrats. Um, uh, 
I think with Bernie Sanders, because he has built a more of a, a campaign activist base, if he becomes the presidential candidate for the Democrats, there'll be huge pressure on him from that base to, to take on a, another lefty, yeah. uh, whether that's Elizabeth Warren or someone else. Uh, and I think it would be seen as a huge betrayal if he um, uh, took on um, uh, someone to the right um, uh, uh, running alongside him for vice president. But, yeah, who knows? Mm, mm. Well, we, we may find out. Yes. Uh, we may not. Who knows? Uh, all right. Let's move on to the UK. The Labour Party in, in the UK have just released its manifesto. I hate using that word. Uh, and it's pretty radical. Yeah, it's uh, possibly the most um, uh, radical uh, manifesto by uh, in terms of left-wing terms uh, from a, a mainstream uh, political party in the West for decades, certainly in Britain and uh, certainly for the Labour Party. Um, and again, that points to the side of this re-emergence of, of left-wing politics, of a left-wing form of social democracy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Tony Blair is uh, pulling his hair out and uh, contemplating uh, mm. uh, voting for the Tories, maybe. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's... Um, I mean, some of it's just sort of bread-and-butter stuff, like an increase in health in the health budget um, and uh, a raise in the minimum wage from uh, £8, 21 to £10, so... Um, uh, Stopping um, the pension rate raise, but one one of the big things uh, is um, the call to nationalise key industries. So the uh, Labour is calling that's saying that will nationalise uh, what they call the big six. six energy firms, National Grid, the water industry, Royal Mail, railways, and and the broad uh, band arm of. Um, BT, which British Telecom, I guess, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and uh, so that that uh, points to, uh, a, in a sense, the radicalness, the relative radicalness of this, where um, it's definitely going beyond third wave politics. So third wave politics, you had all those um, uh, more um, hard right wing economic regimes like Reagan in um, America, Thatcher in Britain, um, the fourth Labour government in New Zealand, followed mm. by the Bolger government, that 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 push through very hardline economic reforms to um, um, you know sell off national assets, uh, corporatise national assets, uh, deregulate the economy, etc., etc. The third way idea, which sort of uh, Blair in Britain and uh, Clinton um, in America represented, was okay. Neoliberalism with its nasty edges sort of uh, um, shaved off. Uh, so. Uh, some people project uh, uh, the third way is so something between socialism and capitalism. No, it's really something between hardline neoliberalism and traditional social democracy. Uh, so neoliberalism light. With this manifesto, um, especially with the call to nationalise these uh, big six energy firms, it's really a, a break from that third way politics. In rhetoric, at least. Uh, and in terms of some concrete policies. Now, um, where Labour possibly, what, what's the vulnerable point is the issue of Brexit. Uh, mm. And um, um, they, they're kind of wanting to appeal to both sides. So they're saying, OK, we'll renegotiate re uh, re a deal, another deal, and then put that to the electorate in a referendum. Um, and this is seen as a betrayal by uh, many um, uh, of Labour's working class supporters, say, who, who voted for Brexit. There was a people's vote, and the people decided that they wanted Brexit. Um, and also, um, what 
Corbyn is calling for in terms of British relationship with EU is maintaining a lot of the the, the you know the links with trade and regulation etc. Mm. Um, and the EU um, there's an interesting um, there's a, a a website called Spiked Online, and I was listening to one of their podcasts, and and, and they and they said, well, it's farcical to project a uh, a hard left manifesto and program, but still say that you want to maintain this the strong attachment to the EU, because the EU effectively outlaws socialism, mm. and that's kind of true. They do They're all the regulations of the EU and limits on what governments can spend, etc., yeah. and borrow, effectively out law, uh, socialism, if not even a, a mild left-wing form of social democracy. And we've seen it in Italy where you had a populist government elected um, uh, which we were trying to implement a whole lot of um, uh, extensions of the wealthy state and the EU basically said, no, you can't do that under EU rules. Uh, Syriza and Greece, uh, again, uh, they were prevented from implementing um, a left-wing programme. So um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to implement a left-wing social democratic programme, there really needs to be a sharp political and economic break with the EU. Mm. Um, how is Jeremy still on the job, Geoffrey? Like, um, you know, he's not. I mean, he's, he's. I guess he's popular outside of Parliament, but within his own party, he's not really that well liked. No, I mean, I think he's got this huge um, army of supporters outside Parliament, and you know, this was what propelled him uh, really to the to the leadership, wasn't it? Um, mm. And the momentum group uh, that supported him. Uh, remember, you know, it was sort of by good luck, really, that Jeremy Corbyn even uh, got the job as Labour Party leader. Uh, you know, he needed 35 nominations from other MPs to even get on the ballot. He got 36, and a number of those are on record as saying, oh, well, they just signed the form to because they thought it would be good to have a contest uh, to have Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn there giving some ideas. It's a very patronising view, isn't it? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. They thought they were going to get in Andy Burnham, who was a more, much more, you know, middle of the middle ground kind of candidate, middle of the road um, candidate, more in line with uh, Ed Miliband, who was the previous failed leader, more in line with, you know, the Gordon Brown, Tony Blair wing of the, the party. I mean, a bit more radical perhaps, but um, that's who they thought they were going to get. Uh, and they ended up with Jeremy Corbyn, who uh, in some ways had parallels Bernie Sanders, you know, with the army of supporters. But, I mean, as John says, you know, the, the issue of Brexit is the dominant one. Like in any other year, this rat manifesto, which includes nationalisation, would be, would be huge. Mm. But there is only really one issue in, in, at the moment and that is uh, Brexit and it's a huge uh, uh, position change that uh, has come through now with with Labour's manifesto that they are offering a second referendum and it was only at the start of the year that that seemed you know a really quite outlandish proposition to you know have a second ballot and uh, you know just to you know put a counter to all this radicalism that you're seeing in the manifesto you know one of the big proponents for uh, the second a second vote uh, a second referendum which is, which is called the people's people's vote is what they like to call it the supporters of this uh, one of the biggest backers of that is Alistair Campbell who was Tony Blair's right hand man mm. so I uh, you know I don't think it should be in any doubt that you know who who supports um, this the second vote for uh, over Brexit and the outcome um, you know is very much uh, you know either remain in the EU that's one of the options or um, leave the EU but, but sort of in name only and have 
keep a lot of the the framework. So he's claiming he wants to renegotiate the agreement, uh, Corbyn, um, but that would keep it much more in line with what the the current arrangements are. So it, it's all you know, you know, in flux at the moment. But the Brexit issue towers above all, all others, really, at the at the moment. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we've run out of time, chaps. Uh, it's already it's nine o'clock. So thank you both for joining me this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank we'll you talk very much, again next Monday. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.